0: Hello and welcome to the Collapse Podcast. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we are going to do Pan Am Part 4. This is it. We find out what happens to the Pan Am story. We're going to start with a little review here. A real quick overview. The company was started by Trip and during his tenure as CEO for over 30 years, he brought the company up to be a Huge company that was pole vaulting over the competition. He brought in the jet age, essentially. Then after he stepped down, you had Halaby and Gray. And then, you know, the company wasn't doing terribly. They got through some crashes and, you know, safety was improved in the industry. And then the story really starts to take off with Seawell. And the deregulation of the airlines... Seawell buys national, thinking that having domestic routes is going to save the company because they're not doing so well anymore, as other airlines are impeding on their international routes. And then deregulation happens. So Seawell's happy. They get national airlines. They absorb them completely into the company, thinking that will save them. And it does very little. There is a little bump. They make some money. Seawell's praised as a savior of the company, But in fairness, all the airlines were doing well. And then they started losing money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then all of a sudden the board realized maybe they didn't like him so much anymore. So he got booted out. And that's essentially where we are. Sewell is gone. They also sold some of their other endeavors. (laughs) They sold some of their other endeavors. They sold their hotel chain. Uh, just to get some extra money, as well as their headquarters, if you remember. Mm-hmm. The highest office building sold in New York City at the time. So, Seawell is out. But it's okay, because the new man in town to save Pan Am is in. Ed Acker. So, he was born in Texas, and of course he's the first Pan Am CEO without an Ivy League education. We'll have to see if that... Is good or bad. He didn't actually go to business school, though. He studied psychology and economics. Ooh. And the board at this time, when they were looking for a new CEO, they wanted somebody to fix their finances. And they found this guy, and he had a pretty good resume. He was at Air Florida, and when he started in 1977, they had an annual revenue of $7.8 million. And when he left three years later, their revenue was $161 million. Wow. Yeah, Good Im- track impressive.
1: Record. Very impressive track record.
0: <laughs> very impressive. So as you can imagine, they took a look at this guy and said, We want you. <laughs> Please <laughs> fix our company. So he came on. People were very happy. He had a round table style of management, which, if you remember, round table is kind of everybody sitting well, it's after King Arthur's court, but everybody's at the table. Everybody's opinion is equal. You can bounce things off each other. You don't have to feel very constricted or worried about negative comments per se. sounds healthy. Uh, Yeah, it is. And I kind of, I do like this. He was also known as a vest pocket CEO. So he always had a deal or a route or basically he just had an ace up his sleeve all the time. And he never really let anybody know about it until right before it happened. Yeah. So when he kind of came on, so he's got this, it seems like a relatively healthy management style. And his focus was on changing around some of the international routes, and he canceled uh, around-the-world flights, save some money there. Seawell's strategy in the last few years of his term there was to focus on the international routes again, even though he had just paid hundreds of millions of dollars for domestic routes. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe he was thinking yeah. they were going to take care of themselves. Well, I think what they were hoping was to feed people in, to, like the hub-and-spoke model, feed people into the big airports where they came out of so they could push people onto their international lines where, where the money was. Hmm. Uh, at this point in time, 30% of their revenue was domestic. And so Ed basically flipped this around and he said, I want to focus on the domestic again. Okay, that lasted six months. And then they focused back on international routes. So they're flip flopping back and forth. This change in directions, especially so quickly, is not... Healthy for a company. Mm-hmm. You have one CEO that's doing one thing, the next one comes in and flips it. That's okay. And then he flips it back again. It's definitely not showing stability. Just a
1: quick tangent. I know I know I keep harping on culture each time we talk about this, but you know, thinking on the people side of, of what's happening. When employees see that a company starts all of these I am going to call it a big initiative here even though technically it's just trying where they're focusing on their routes right but when they have all these initiatives that they're focusing on and they only make it about halfway they realize like that's just our culture we just start things and 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 don't finish them um and so anytime eventually you develop this pattern and everybody in the company is like oh yeah we just do that we don't we don't finish anything so there's really no need for me to like really give my all in this project because we're probably going to just dump it in about six months
0: yeah that's the pan am way
1: (laughs) that's what i'm seeing here you know i can't imagine morale is very good inside the company right now
0: yeah i actually i worked at one place and the employees joked and they said their slogan was just good enough (laughs) (laughs) so we said they went back their focus was back on international routes pan am is still losing huge amounts of money so they have to make expense cuts. And where does a company typically look at expenses to reduce? It's come down to cutting wages. Mm-hmm. This never typically goes down very well, and he wanted to make a 10% wage cut. Unexpectedly, this went over very well.
1: You're being sarcastic, right? No. I,
0: no, I am I am serious. The employees knew the company wasn't doing well. Mm. So Ed went on tour, he went all over the company, and explained how the company would be saved. And four out of the five unions within Pan Am agreed to the pay cuts and wage freezes. In exchange, they did get a seat on the board and an employee stock ownership plan. It's really a win-win, I would say. And it it was a wage freeze, and it was for a specific period of time. It was supposed to unfreeze. This was supposed to be a temporary thing. But... Yeah, let's see what happens. (laughs) So things are looking up, or at least they're feeling up in the company. This period lasted less than a year. And people were starting to become disillusioned because things weren't really changing. And then some things happened that really made them scratch their heads. Uh, Ed leased some uh, some planes, some 737s back, uh, from Air Florida, where he used to be the CEO, for over $6 million. This really was to help the company, but it looked at the time that he was just skimming off the top. So this apparent shadiness gave him a little nickname In the company He was called Fast Eddie <laughs> and So now we're up to 1981 So they made these pay cuts And they're still losing money In 1981, 1982 They lost roughly 500 million dollars They are hemorrhaging money They could probably drop money From their planes And might they might lose it a little <laughs> less Than the way they're bleeding right now The amount of money that they lost was so outrageous, the staff thought it was a lie. Oh, my (laughs) god! They thought it was a lie to hide money from the government, and there were stories that were circulating. One of them was that, employees would say, we saw Ed and his wife on the plane with $1 or $2 million in the suitcase trying to smuggle it. Oh, my goodness. Stories and rumors were just rumming Uh, rampant. Yeah, once the rumor mill gets out, you got to get ahead of it before
1: this happens, but way too late at that point.
0: Yes. Morale is low. Employees aren't happy. They think their CEO is lying to them at best and stealing money at worst. Ed didn't really help these rumors that much because he enjoyed this imperial treatment of being a CEO. He wasn't acting like the company was losing all of this money. And An example is Ed and his wife took a trip to Moscow. Sandy, his wife, really liked champagne. And when they arrived, uh, she liked it so much, she took the bottle off the plane. She did not know that if you took, as a staff member, if you took champagne off a plane, you would get fired immediately. You don't take anything off like that. And it looked bad. And again, rumors started that they're stealing from the company and they're just living high on the company's dime.
1: Was that one of those empty flights to Moscow? (laughs) Was it?
0: Yeah, yeah. I I was thinking about that. um, Empty plus two. So the honeymoon period's over, things aren't looking good, and then the the pilots remembered, hey, Ed's not even a pilot. Why are we letting him run the company? Hmm. Yeah. This didn't really start registering in the pilots' minds until Ed came out and said, I don't really like pilots. They make too much money. And that's when they said, whoa, wait, wait, you're not even a pilot. (laughs) Did he say that? He said, I don't like pilots. It, not a quote. Oh, okay. But you're going to see what happens here. He said, uh, You're paid too much for too little work. And they're like, Well, hey, we work really hard. You know? And I said, Okay, you work 75 hours a month, so half of a normal work week, and you make 180000 a year. Uh, you make more than the VPs in the company. Um, the pilots really couldn't dispute the claims that much because it was true. Uh, but I like how they they said, "Well, you know, there, there's more than just flight time. You know, we we have uh, these flight duties, and we perform services, <laughs> and you know, we we really do work just as hard as everybody else, if not if yeah, you know, a little bit more." That's, that's unbillable time. <laughs> giving yeah, back, <laughs> giving right. it back to the company. <laughs> yeah, as you could you'd imagine, uh, the pilots weren't too <laughs> fond of this view. All of a sudden, Ed, uh, not looking too hot in their eyes. Uh, just a little, this doesn't really fit in all that much, but a little fun fact at the time, uh, until the 70s, there were no wheels on luggage, so wheels kind of came out in the 70s. They're, they were originally used by flight attendants, and the pilots thought they were too too manly to, to do that, and so they carried their 50-pound suitcases, and a few hernias later, they decided to start using their the wheels, and they had a little nickname for them, Wimp Wheels, And they were all carrying them around, or wheeling them around the airports. Wheels. Yeah. All right. So now we're up to 1985, just six years before the collapse of Pan Am. And there's a big event that happens. The next person that we're going to talk about, Pan Am hired to solve their problems. Little did they know, although you could see it a mile away, that he was going to cause lots of problems. This is Ray Graby if I said that right. Ray, I'm just going to call him Ray, he's the new VP of Industrial Relations. His job was to deal with the union. So up until this point, the union and Pan Am had a pretty good relationship. They would go to the negotiating table, they would both talk tough, talk about the issues, and then they'd go out for a drink. And they'd sign the paperwork and be done. Ray was known to have a bare-knuckled, brawling approach to unions. He did not like them, he did not budge, and he said... He told the union leaders, "It's time to give back." <laughs> yeah, Oof. you have a struggling company. That I mean, at the moment has a pretty good relationship with its unions overall, and now you're going to start pulling and trying to take back from your employee base. What? It's not a good look. Number one, even if it may be necessary, I think they definitely took the wrong approach. You don't bring in a gorilla fighter. For finesse work. And the and
1: the unions have already made concessions,
0: so I'm sure they're not pleased about having to make any more. That would be an understatement. <laughs> there was an external consulting firm that was hired, and a, a little brief snippet from the report said, Pan Am is not able to confront its own problems. Its staff is not as well paid as other airlines, and the labor relations is an all-time low. Yeah. And then... Ray came out and he tried to convince the unions to agree to f- pay freezes and productivity measures. Hmm. I'm going to run that through MBA translator there. Yeah. All that means is we want you to work more for less money. <laughs> Whenever somebody starts talking about productivity, it's usually not let's give people more money. Right. How can we squeeze more work out of you
1: in the same amount of time or less for the same amount of money? Exactly. Yeah. Whenever
0: they start talking about productivity, I just start going, great. We know where this is going to go. Surprisingly, the pilots union out of the five that are there, they actually reached an accord with the airline. The rest of them didn't. And because of that, there, there was a big strike and there's a big division between the company. So you actually have union pilots and company pilots, right? So company pilots did training and they were part of more like management and they were still working. And the Union Pilots weren't. So it got nasty between the two of them. The strike didn't last very long. Both sides claimed they were trying to save the company. And the best way to make sure that you won is to just claim victory when it was over. So when the strike ended, both sides said that they won. Nothing really happened, though, aside from a bigger divide. Hmm. So Pan Am is scrambling to stay in the air. So a few months after this Strike, Ed looked around and Pan Am needed money. So he sells the Pacific section, the entire Pacific division to United for $750 million, which doesn't mean anything right this second, but it will in a minute. This was a huge amount of money. They paid 22 times the annual earning of this division. And the Typical number at this point in time was about 9.5. So Payman actually really did make out in the short term. Obviously, now you can look back and say United crushed it mm-hmm. when they are looking at the long term. However, at the time, it's not terrible. What do you do when people think you made a bad deal? You just tell them how great it was. <laughs> you know, Ed was explaining how you couldn't keep up the fleet in the Pacific and the Atlantic. We spent... You know, $1.1 billion in the Atlantic fleet, and we just couldn't afford to do another billion in the Pacific. Uh, On the surface, I'm sure that's true. When you look deeper into it, it just shows you how sick this company is. You you can't, I mean, the Pacific is making them money. So you're saying you can't invest in something that's making you money? Mm -hmm. It, It just shows you they're just, they're running out of capital. And this is a hard place to be in, to be fair. Banks aren't as willing to give you money. You can't just borrow and invest and, you know, make money down the road. They're just losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Their options are getting limited. You saw in the last episode, the bank cut their revolving credit in half. So at the moment, they have some capital to work with. Another interesting little tidbit about this deal to United was about 2,700 employees, Pan Am employees went and became United employees. And this Mm. is kind of important because this does not happen again. And these employees that went over, they were essentially secured jobs. And future sales, as we'll see, this did not happen. And those pilots didn't have a job. So this is the basically the last nice sale that we're going to see. Mm. So Ed was telling them how great this deal would be for the airline. Like I said, these employees, they were the lucky ones. Well, now we have staff and pilots that are leaving the company, and they do need more pilots. So they start to bring back people from the furlough list that they had. And some pilots were gone for 10 years and were on that list, and they still came back. Wow. Yeah, it just shows you how hard it could be to get a good uh, pilot position. And another little tidbit, so this is 1986, something that we haven't seen yet. Women were now flying planes. Oh. Nice little win there. Unfortunately for Pan Am, things are not looking good. There were whispers going around uh, about something called Tango Uniform, which just basically means uh, you're dead, defunct. Mm. But we're not there yet. A new leader of the Union emerges, Errol Johnstad, I think is how you say it. He was uh, very cerebral, less brawn uh, than his predecessors. His approach, he wanted to find a white knight to save Pan Am. He would tell pilots... You know we are Pan Am, and we must save ourselves. And we are willing to do this even at the expense of our pay. So he went out looking for buyers. There were a few that were interested, but none of them panned out. And unfortunately, in 1987, he, Errol, entered the National Air Race. His engine failed mid-flight, and he crashed. And so Pan Am lost one of its fighting heroes, essentially for the company. He was really working for oh, them. Wow. Uh, back at headquarters, things are not going well. Uh, Matt, congratulations. You're on the board of directors. Uh, you're, uh, Let's just say that you're that union representative, so you're sitting in this board meeting, and you know that something big is happening. Ed called this meeting, and you sit down. However, you hear some whispering behind you, and it sounds like the COO of the company may also have some big news you think this is going to be an interesting meeting ed stands up and he says i want to merge with Braniff airlines Uh, the deal would sell the airline but it's going to allow pan am to keep the shuttle in the express which i'll explain in a second Uh, so the shuttle was a kind of a neat concept essentially it was in busy areas such as boston new york and the washington dc area is a business well you could anybody but it was used a lot by businesses. You could just walk into the airport and just walk right onto the plane. You just buy a ticket right there and walk right That's on. Cool. It was meant to be, yeah, it was really meant to be almost like a bus, really. You just get yes. on it didn't lose money. It didn't really make money either, mm-hmm. yeah, but essentially, if they sold a brand if this is what they would get to keep. They say, okay. All right, Matt, you're still sitting there as a director thinking, okay, well, it would sort of save the company. And you think the meeting's over and uh, the COO, Marty, stands up and he says, I have another plan. This plan Ed knows nothing about. And Marty says, we've talked with the unions and he literally just got this information 30 minutes before the meeting started. We talked to the unions, and they are willing to make pay concessions of two hundred million dollars, so we do not have to sell the company. Oh boy, Ed was shell shocked. This did not go well. Yeah, he uh, he got and his own ace in the vest, right? <laughs> yeah, there was a fist fight between Ed and Marty. And the company was pretty, after they broke them up and over the next couple of days, the company was pretty, pretty split. Wow. I mean, the company was imploding, essentially. Uh, The board was fed up with both of them, Marty and Ed, and he, they were not happy with the Pan Am shuttle because he had spent $150 million on it from the proceeds of the Pacific sale. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even really making money. So they told Ed and Marty, they're both out, gone. They need someone else to save the company. And this is going to be our last CEO. And the name and the man that they got was Tom Plaskett. Give you a little description here. He was a diminutive in stature and manners. All right. Hmm. He had an MBA. All right. (laughs) Already on a good foot there from Harvard, no less. And he started his career at GM. He then worked for American Airlines where he started the first frequent flyer program. Very cool. He liked to play classic piano. He loved computers. He always carried a laptop with him everywhere he went. And I, I like this little quote. He didn't like strong drink or bad managers. <laughs> who who does like bad managers? It's kind of a. Yeah. Uh, and and if he was pairing. really. Yeah. yeah. And if you remember. Oh, ahead.
1: no. I was saying it's a weird pairing, too.
0: There's yeah. two things I don't like
1: in life. Strong drink and bad managers. It's, Kind of a, I don't know.
0: Weird. And if you remember Seawell, he would just explode. People, do you remember that quote mm-hmm. when they switched from Hallaby to Seawell? It was said it was falling asleep to Snow White and waking up next to Godzilla. Right. Tom was more of the Snow White. He, if he was really upset, he would say things like, Oh, poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When people were asked to describe him, they would say something along the lines of, he's a nice guy. So nothing really stands out per se, Mm -hmm. but we're going to see how he does. Uh, So he comes to CEO, and one of the first things he was asked at a meeting by the pilots was, why isn't management taking a pay cut? That's a good Good question. question. That's a good question. And the answer he gives is the same one that you hear over and (laughs) over and over again. I don't think it's ever changed for all of time. And you can, I'm sure you already know, but I'll say it anyway. His answer is, quote, we can't recruit good managers unless we offer attractive salaries. (laughs) And there we go. It's, isn't it nice to know that the more you pay somebody, the more effective they are? Right. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh... So with Tom, new management came in. The pilot concessions that Marty was talking about earlier, they never saved as much as they'd hoped. So what do you do? You hire a new vice president. They're put in charge to help increase productivity if you get their drift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, we we covered that. Yeah. And some people that were at the company for a long time were starting to get worried. A lot of experienced managers were let go and just replaced by union men. And they were worried because these experienced managers, they were the ones who created the manuals and checklists and procedures and flight trainings that really set the industry standard. And now they're gone. And they're worried what's going to happen. On the plus side, nothing really did happen. There were no crashes or calamities like they thought were going to happen, and things just kind of chugged along. And then Pan Am just kept losing money. So let's kind of talk about Pan Am right now. It's 1989, two years before they go bankrupt. Where are they sitting? What does a company look like two years before bankruptcy? Uh, Pan Am has a net worth right now of negative 629 million. Hmm. Not sitting well. Not not the direction you want to go. And this is their little excerpt. It was much longer. I tried to cut it down as much as I can about what Pan Am in 1989 thought was going to happen in their future. Here's the quote. In the longer term The corporation believes that Pan Am must be part of a larger network in order to add additional traffic to support its route structure and must obtain additional financial resources to support its operation. Management of the corporation continues to explore possible opportunities to address these objectives. Pan Am's plan for 1990 contemplates a substantial increase in revenues from the levels achieved in 1989, partially offset by an increase in expenses comparable to the increases in 1989 for a reduced loss from that occurred in 1989. However, there are risks and contingencies inherent in any plan or program. The airline industry is highly volatile and competitive. Route towards fair action and adverse economic developments, such as a rise in fuel prices or a downturn in the economy or a public perception of the safety of air travel are examples of factors not subject to Pan Am's control. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and actually, mm. this was. Go ahead, I was man, just gonna say. So the,
1: the translation there is: we've got a plan. It's we're in a pretty bad spot, but it's not completely our fault because you know things are tight everywhere. Um, and if this doesn't work, just remember it's pretty competitive out there. So
0: that's what I got from that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, to be fair, it wasn't all rah rah. It wasn't saying we're gonna be okay. It's true, they're saying they were honest. They were actually pretty good. They're saying – and they actually followed up with what they were, they were doing. Over the next year, you see, they're trying to merge with another airline. They're trying to get bought. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. I was hoping for something a little more funny, uh, but it wasn't. It was actually not, not that bad. And they were absolutely right about some things outside of their control. And one of those things – so this was in 1989. One year before that, they did have a big issue, and that was terrorism. Mm-hmm you know a TWA plane and a Pan Am 747 were hijacked and both of those ended in a shootout passengers weren't too keen to fly after that right even if it has nothing to do with your brand exactly it's going to going to affect you and then the mm-hmm. and then the famous one is December 21st 1988 this is flight 103 a plane a Pan Am 747 just exploded over a Scotland town The plane and the debris were all over the town, like a meteor shower. That's terrifying. Witnesses stated it looked like a massacre had taken place. It was... It was bad. Wow. So... Neither you or I were alive at this point mm-hmm. in time, which shows our, our youth. Uh, but let's say you were. And so this is all you know. You know that there was an explosion over Scotland. And you're watching the TV, uh, the media. They bring on all these airframe experts who they, they say, yeah, this is an old 747. It probably just broke apart cause it, due to its age. And it was very plausible. You know, Out of 710 Boeing 747s constructed, this one was number 15 off the lot. So it was, it was old. Mm. It had 72,000 service hours, which means it flew around the world 1,500 times. That was a that's lot. That's a lot. Um, and I did look this up. Today, that's about the half to what I could find. That's about um, the 50% mark for how long a plane might last. But at this point in time, that was not true. This is a very old plane mm. at this point in time. I, I would I would react, though, probably the same way that I feel like I reacted when
1: there was a lot of trouble with Malaysian Airlines. In you know, in the present, where you see a couple of things, they don't necessarily reflect on the brand as a whole. But you're like, I don't know, like two times. It's you know, you see enough enough things happening, you develop that pattern. You're like, I'm just going to stay away, even if even if they issue those those warnings. That it's just, it was one old plane. It's probably a fluke. Not, I'm sure that their statement had more gravity than what I just said, but <laughs> but you know, I mean, I don't think I'd be very convinced.
0: Yeah, and the airline industry was very quiet about this. They were conducting their own investigation, and they didn't want to say anything until it was done. So for the the last few days, you've had all these airline experts come on and talk about how an old plane it was and how where it could have failed and just exploded. And then the airline came out, and they said, we finished our investigation, and the plane was fine. There was a bomb on the plane. It was placed in the forward baggage compartment. This is right next to the main electronics bay. They, detonating it there made it so that there was no distress signal that was sent. The plane just went dark. The bomb was inside a cassette player, inside a suitcase. The bomb had a timer and a barometer on it so it would explode a certain height after a certain time. The plane was delayed leaving the London airport, so it... They theorized that it was actually intended to blow up over the ocean so that the plane would really just disappear and fall to the bottom of the ocean. Wow. But due to the delay, it exploded over land. Yeah, scary. It was really scary. And this happened on a Pan Am flight. People weren't too keen on flying Pan mm-hmm. Am after this. I can imagine. So, And we just talked about the financial statements of 1989. They didn't look too good. But it's okay. If you remember in that financial statement, they said... 1990 was going to look much better. And people went to Tom and they said, fix it. And he said, okay, I will. And he had a plan. He was going to buy Northwest Airlines. I said, what? With what money? <laughs> <laughs> you have a negative net worth. <laughs> what money are you to going go to get? Do more loans
1: from the banks that won't give it to you?
0: Uh, yeah. So after Wall Street I had a few days of chuckling and trying to figure out why. They even thought this was possible. Uh, they realized this this was actually a real offer. It, they were offering $2.7 billion. This was backed by big banks. And the reason big banks supported this is they their analysis showed that merging would save $240 million a year. And it was enough to shore up the losses that Pan Am was having. Oh, so the banks actually did want to back. Yeah. Interesting. Yep, they I did. was expecting them to be. But okay. All right. Well, it's gonna save us fifteen th- million dollars. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to think about it from the bank's perspective. If you already have a lot of money in Pan Am and they go under, you're going to get very little back. True. So if they come to you with a real plan, so you can get their money back, they might be interested in helping you out to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. Now that makes sense. Yeah. Banks looking out for themselves. Which is well, you know, of course. That's uh, got to look out for for number right. one. The deal didn't pan out. Another buyer swooped in and won the Northwestern board of directors. What really stung about this is twenty three million dollars was spent just creating the plan to buy out the company. That was gone.
1: Wow. How yeah. I'm trying to think like just an estimated labor and like
0: what? Is it? I think yeah, just the labor mm-hmm. and. I'm sure they paid the bank a fee for all their help and mm, all their good mm, stuff. I see. So Pan Am, 1989, not doing well. 1990, not any better. <laughs> so you're the CEO of Pan Am. You got three choices, sell, merge, or bankruptcy. What do you think is option number one?
1: Um, I would go with merge if possible.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think they were thinking the same thing. Tom knew that he had to do something, so he faced this head-on, and he did try to get the support of the staff. And surprisingly, morale was pretty good. People really knew they needed to make the airline better. It was going to go bust. At the time, it's on-time status, you know, so how often a plane actually shows up when it's supposed to. They were number thirteen, but with some of their productivity changes, you know, they rose to become number one, the most on-time airline. 1990. Wow. They cleaned up its term, their terminals, and they generally improved the efficiency of the airline. It's looking good. I mean, the company is making itself more attractive. Uh, despite all these changes, they were still losing 2 million dollars a day. No one could figure out why they were losing money. And then Tom was at a quarterly meeting and he started talking about revenue, passenger miles, load factors, percentage of seats filled, yields, I think people are just starting to look at themselves, what does it mean? And when you put it through our MBA translator, it means Tom doesn't know what's going on either. Mm -hmm. I like to think of that quote, you know, a politician or a CEO uses statistics like a drunk man uses a light post, (laughs) not for illumination, but for support.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm probably still running with this. They probably fixed it by now, but I'm still thinking like. Why are we losing $2 million? Hey, why don't you write it down in an in a sheet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like maybe if you kept track of it physically in an organized manner, like, you know, using accounting might help. I'm sure they fixed Account- some of it by now, but I can't imagine that if you've had no accounting for years like that, that you can just fix all of that overnight.
0: You know, I can see him looking at you right now. Accounting? Yeah. <laughs> Is that a new Write it down. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. But 1990 is getting bad. Pan Am's to the point where they can't pay their current bills. Uh, Something's going to give. Uh, You said merge. Uh, I think they would have liked to do that. Mm -hmm. And they did try and none of them were really successful. So the next thing besides bankruptcy is sell. So Tom met with the CEO of United, Stephen Wolf, and they talked. And United did want something, and it's something that United couldn't get themselves, and that was a route to the Heathrow Airport in London. Now, there's only so many slots available for planes, and Pan Am and TWA had them. And Pan Am was the first U.S. airline to fly to London 52 years ago. A little tidbit there. Hmm. To today? No, sorry, from 1990. Wow. Yeah, no, no, from 1990. So this was the plan. We're going to sell this one one route to London, and we'll make some money. This is a long process. It's not a domestic route. There's the U.S. government has to approve it. The British government has to approve it. And then the two companies, or the two boards. And secondly, Pan Am has to remain solvent. They have to not go bankrupt in order for this deal to go through the way they want. Yeah and in the meantime they had to sell something else to stay afloat they had some routes in berlin and they sold those to lufthansa Ugh. but it wasn't enough in 1991 of january 9th pan am declared bankruptcy mm. yes and you can united is not happy cuz what happens when you go bankrupt right we we're chatting off the air here about a, a good example. And Matt, did you want to explain it?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so if you have a car and you, you own that car, but you are getting a loan from the bank, um, you quote unquote own it, but really the bank owns it, right? So if you decide to sell that vehicle, you can sell it to whoever you want to um, for as much as or as little as you want to. Um, but if the bank comes and repossesses the car... You are no longer in control of who it gets sold to. And the bank
0: can do with it what it will. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so if you're able to sell before you start defaulting on your loan and the bank picks it up, you have a lot more control over what happens. As soon as that bank takes the vehicle from you or as soon as the bankruptcy courts start taking assets, the credit, it starts going to the creditors. And there's very little control over where it goes. Mm-hmm. So... Pan Am declared bankruptcy, but it's okay. The spokesman for Pan Am said, no one's getting laid off. Nothing was changing. It's just a routine bankruptcy. If there's it's a, there's just a th- routine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so routine that it's, its stock plummeted from $75 a share to $0.75 cents a share. Oh, my gosh. Its oh bonds gosh. were now considered junk bonds. And they were being sold for $0.09 cents on the dollar. The week before they declare bankruptcy, Airbus, which if you remember we talked about Boeing earlier as a plane manufacturer. Airbus is a European airplane manufacturer. So Airbus pulled the lease on twenty one of Pan Am's aircraft because they hadn't paid they hadn't made a payment since last year. Or they haven't made a payment in a year on those planes. And Airbus didn't even know if they could make the current lease payments. <laughs> That's a lot of grace. To, yes, that's what I thought as I well know. You have to remember, planes are very expensive There's not a lot of buyers for them If there was a chance that they were going to get any money for them I imagine that's what they were kind of thinking So the sale of the, that, those British routes to Heathrow still hadn't been finalized yet So they needed to come up with a plan and Pan Am, even though they you know, they just declared bankruptcy, they couldn't even make payroll by mid-January. If you remember I said earlier they sold the Berlin routes to Lufthansa, mm. that was for $150 million. That was gone. Just gone. And you would think that'd be it. Pan Am has collapsed. They went into bankruptcy. Everything's gone to the courts. They're going to start selling off their assets and paying off creditors. But that's not the end of Pan Am's story. Hmm. There are too many interested parties in keeping Pan Am afloat so they can tear it apart the way that they want. As we said, United desperately wanted the London route. So they worked out a deal with Pan Am and the government. They gave Pan Am the money it needed to stay solvent, it just means basically they're not going bankrupt. They're able to make the payments and make their, their bills. And... Pan Am decided they needed to make more cuts. They needed to cut jobs. They couldn't just say that, so they had somebody come out and uh, they said it in MBA speak. They said, uh, we cannot absorb revenue loss without taking severe steps to lower our costs commensurate with the reduced revenue. Hmm. So we just translate that and we're we're making less money. We need to cut jobs and spending to offset this Mm -hmm. loss. So they start cutting jobs. The British Airlines deal, not British Airlines, but the Heathrow deal had still not gone through. So Pan Am is being held by a thread and United is frantically trying to put tape all over this thread, you know, just to hold it in place, just a little bit longer so they could get what they want. Um, TWA actually tried to merge with Pan Am, but it, it was too late. They're both pretty weak companies. And the United deal finally went through for $290 million. And the pilots were happy. They thought, great, we're a bunch of us, a few hundred of us are going to go over with the deal. This didn't happen. Only 42 pilots went with the deal. And they were not happy. Mm. The staff started to feel like they were being sold out. And the union didn't do anything about it. Which really is understandable. It's a national union. For all of the airlines and it just so right. happens that yeah united also paid the most dues out of any airline so you know i'm sure mm-hmm. that had something to do with it it
1: feels a little bit like um
0: uh
1: kind of like a game of monopoly you know pan am is constantly landing on the other player spaces paying them money right and and they're and, <laughs> exactly and they're losing ever. money and so they're like oh, well what if what if i sell you um park place will that Will that help? And United's like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, that would help. Um, sure, sure, sell it to us, sell it to us, and it's like, all right, we're in the game a little longer, baby. But really, you know, you're going to lose. You know, it's over, yeah. right? You're it's just 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 dragging. You're just it dragging on. it out,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, so Pan Am doesn't have its Pacific fleet. It just sold its lucrative routes to Britain, but they're not done yet. Delta. It's coming out of the blue here. It's 1991, and they just went public, and they're now the third largest airline in the United States. And they just had a few hundred million dollars because they just had their IPO, and they're looking around for uh, something to spend money on. And guess what? Pan Am is going cheap. I mean, they were $75 a share, and now they're $0.75 a share. That's looking pretty good. (laughs) Uh, they they were looking at Pan Am and they said all we got to do is slap some new paint on there and there we go we got ourselves some new routes. Uh, but time was against them, just like with United. United didn't care anymore; they got what they wanted. Uh, but Delta cared because they want the company. They don't want to have to go through and you know go through it and just have any other bidders. Mm-hmm. So uh Pan Am had forty million dollars left at the bank this time. They're not going to be solvent for very long, and the reason they had forty million dollars left in the bank was because they weren't paying any of their bills. <laughs> hmm. So they really don't. Have a good money. way to save money. I think I might try that. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's it's a pretty good short term tactic. Yeah, yeah, and that's what they thought too. Uh, Delta ended up. The short story is Del- Delta ended ended up ultimately buying the rest of Pan Am minus a few routes in Latin America and Miami for $416 million. And the, they took on $389 million of its liabilities, which the, the banks were, were very happy uh, with that arrangement, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But Pan Am's not dead. It's, it's not dead. We still have a few routes in Miami and Latin America. And that they got rebranded. They were calling themselves the Restructured Pan Am. And part of this deal for being bought was that Delta would uh, feed some money into this company to kind of help them out. And um, yeah, and the spokesperson for the Restructured Pan Am came out and said, while the Restructured Pan Am is a smaller airline, it will still be a financially sound carrier to what many see as major economic growth areas of the world, Latin America and the Caribbean. All right. So how do they do? As I said, they were getting cash infusions from Delta. The first one was for $80 million, and the second was for thirty-five, which they blew through quite quickly. And no one was really flying in the airline. And the managers, when they were reporting to Delta, they said, listen, we know what's going on. We're going to try to fix the issues, which really meant they had no idea what was really going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Delta had enough. On December 3rd, 1991, a Delta lawyer came out and said, the world has changed, and Pan Am is not in it. <laughs> He didn't say that part, I added it, but that's essentially what he said. Delta will no longer be helping Pan Am. And that was December 3rd. December 4th, the Pan Am offices opened and then immediately closed for the last time. The last plane of Pan Am landed. Um, But that's not the end of the story for Pan Am, Hmm. actually. Yeah, the Pan Am name and its image were both sold a few years later, 1998. And, it's, uh, and uh, the company was called Guilford Transportation, and it changed its name after it bought it to Pan Am Systems, and it adopted its logo. So now Pan Am is officially gone, and as the last plane landed, a passenger got in a car and drove on over to the Ames retail store. <laughs> Our little preview for the next series. Well, that is it for Pan Am. And now we're going to go to the discussion.
1: Hey, everybody, Matt here. Uh, That's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast, but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to
0: have, feel free to enjoy. All right. All right. So, okay. there's a lot in there. Pan Am had a lot of success and a pretty – I'd say actually had a pretty slow descent. Uh, one of the benefits of being a large company is that it, you usually have a lot of time to fail, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You do have some time to try to correct it. When would you say there was no return for Pan Am? If you had to think about that. um,
1: I want to say – I mean, as as much as um, it was it was kind of a joke, but it was also an analogy, I think, when they started selling routes, especially when they sold the Pacific, because it's like that's how that's how you make your business. Right. And once you sell that to United or whoever, they're not going to give it back. Why would why (laughs) why would they wait for you to come back, revive yourself and then say, hey, actually, we'd like to buy those back from you now. They're they're not going to give them up. So I think no. what when they started selling off their routes, that was when it really, this is the point of no return. You've set a pattern into place where you're going to keep showing your competitors, we're willing to sell our entire business model to stay alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, I think that was the final nail in the coffin. I think that you're right. That is the final nail. I think if you took it back a little bit more, mm-hmm. where they got to the point where they really they maybe could have turned it around, but it was looking bad when they had to sell their profitable hotel business to stay afloat. Right, I forgot about that. That was a yep. yeah. It, it, I I know this would never happen, but at that point in time, let's let's go back to that point in time. They haven't sold the hotel business yet, and you're looking at the finances. The hotel's doing great, and the airlines not. Maybe they should have shifted their focus. Maybe they could have become a hotel company instead and focused on that. That company is still around today and doing well. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's true, right? I don't know. I mean, I think because you own the hotel chain, it's one of those points of perception where you're saying, well, the real business that we are in is, you know, um, in flying. And so rather than thinking, well, what if we just sort of get rid of our our airline and focus on the hotel um you're thinking of all the ways you can save your airline business because that's what you identify as you don't identify as a hotel business and i think like that Man. perception shift you know is um is a barrier and not one i can necessarily blame them for right because i'd think no, i'd think the all. same way i'd be like well, I this is my my business airplanes yeah
0: yeah, and that's how they felt about Hallaby's ideas. With you know, he's like, "Listen, we're not doing all We got to make some changes. Let's let's move our headquarters." They're like, "No, we're not moving our headquarters." And you know what? From a, a, a personal perspective, if you spent your whole life in New York, you don't want to move to Dallas, right? Where's Dallas? Is that I mean, why why am I going to move my whole family there? So you know, there are personal reasons. You know, we talked about in one of the episodes. You know, businesses they're, they're profit seeking, but they're definitely not the most efficient. And for the exact reason we just talked about, people are people, and they bring their flaws and their desires into work. I don't want move to Dallas. Yeah. You know, I live in New York, you know? So they're not thinking about just the business, you know? They're thinking probably about their personal lives, too, mm-hmm. which is totally understandable. Mm-hmm. I would feel the same way.
1: Right. And especially, I mean, I guess for a director, it's different, right? But, you know, it, still, there's no remote work back then. So, you know, yeah, if somebody said, it. like... They we're up and moving our headquarters nowadays it may or may not mean as much now it depends on you know what kind of work structure the company's adopted but back then it's like you move where it is so yeah it makes sense to me
0: yeah let's talk about their successes real quick you know it's it's amazing how far ahead a company can be ahead of its competition and it has all this lead time. But despite that, the other companies were able to catch up. So, you know, Trip said, we're going to the jet age, and they just leapfrog all these other companies, and they do really well because of that. Uh, but because of the decisions that later CEOs made, the other companies were able to catch up. And that's the thing with business. You can make one great decision, uh, but that will not necessarily mean much in the long run. Yeah, if you rest
1: on your laurels for too long, it's, exactly. you know, you're going to miss the next opportunity.
0: And it also just shows you how important succession planning is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a company and nations, everything. It's so vital. And I think if I had to guess, as we look at companies, the ones that are successful for longer periods of time have had really great successors to the great founders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd like to have heard some of the discussions in the board of directors when they were seeking new leaders each time, you know, um because they were clearly desperate for someone to fix the company. Uh, But, you know, and you can see some of the reasoning behind their choices. You know, when they were having financial issues, they sought someone who had a good financial backing or background. Um, But but at the same time, like over and over again, it would be, well, one issue might be kind of fixed, but then we're introducing new ones with this new leader. And so, you know, you're kind of like wondering what their vetting process is or if they're starting to just panic and like, Pull pe- people. I mean, and again, we can't blame all of these guys for everything because they were also dealt certain circumstances, certain hand when they entered the company. So some things are, are going to be more difficult for them to rein in um, simply because of the time they're joining the company. But still, you know, I'm just thinking like the amount of leaders they went through and the board of directors
0: just being like, ah, bring someone <laughs> in new, just fix it, please. Yeah. Just <laughs> make it go away. <laughs> On paper, we will never meet Ed, but on paper, he seems like he—you definitely could have been the guy to turn around Panini. Mm-hmm. He took a really small company, he like ten, increased it tenfold. Like this is a guy that knows what he's doing. Let's bring him in. So on that topic, what do you think of Ed Ecker? How would you rate him? You know, from a an awful bad, okay, great, transformative leader. What do you think? Um, I would say
1: he was a good leader i think you know like you said on paper and the culture that he sort of tried to create with these uh roundtable discussions and giving people more of a voice you know i'd say he was a good leader um
0: yeah those are the pros and i'm gonna give him good because those are the pros but i'm gonna balance it out with the the bads here Mm -hmm. he hired somebody to deal with a union that hated unions right in a time when they needed union cooperation. Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: a <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he was thinking if decision. if he strong arms them, you know, he'll be able to get his way, but it's kind of a I mean, based on what we heard about him, it seems out of character, you
0: know, but maybe he thought the guy would have more finesse.
1: Perhaps. It's hard to say. Perhaps. Or maybe, you know, was it evident that he hated unions or was it one of those yeah, I've worked well, with unions I, before. I've I've actually had quite a few successes in you know negotiating. And then you think like, well, okay, this all sounds really great. And then you get him in and find out, well, the reason is because he you know just like fights
0: his way in. <laughs> <laughs> Hates was a strong word. He just dealt with them. Rough. Sure, it doesn't, you know, he hated them. Sure. Uh, and then secondly, he did not have his finger on the pulse uh, in the culture of the company. He's flying around as if the company is making making money you know and he's living a lavish lifestyle and she's flaunting it it seems like in front of employees yeah it's just not good taste yeah
1: that that i think i think that just un it it unravels everything that he worked for in terms of establishing about trying to establish a better culture at least from the top but you know employees see that and they're not going to take you very seriously um exactly especially because you know his wife taking the champ what was it the champagne? Yeah, off exactly. the flight, yep. you know, and no consequences, right? Um, mm-hmm. That just makes them feel more like these are untouchable elites uh, who run our company and have no idea what it's like to be
0: me. Mm-hmm. So Ed leaves, and we have Tom. Uh, I get Tom was put in a bad bad spot, yeah. Uh, so you know yeah, in that light, I could start, you know how, how do we think Tom did? You know, I'd have to put him probably in that good leader category too. It mm-hmm. wasn't anything that stood out; he did really bad. I I can't think. Yeah, I'm
1: forgetting. I'm trying to like remember the timeline. But was he one of the ones that started selling off routes, or was it Ed Ed started with the Pacific? I can't Ed, remember who did that.
0: Ed sold the routes. Okay. Yeah. Tom was trying to just prevent bankruptcy. Yeah. right? So he ended up he sold to United the the British. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: yeah i i feel like that pattern had already you know as i said before once you start selling them you're you're a little bit committing yourself to it right and so that option was already on the table um but i i can't say that i would necessarily blame it all on him right because you come into that that yeah. how you're going to deal with it he, and he tried he tried to merge there's
0: nothing that really stands out about him there's nothing that really stands out good or bad I did his quote about paying managers a lot of money so they can hire quality managers that stood out to me. That was really yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there there we are. So here we have Pan Am, a company that had a visionary that came out and took the company to its height and then it kind of started to slowly fizzle out after that. Lots of innovation. They did a lot of firsts in aviation. They really did change the industry in its prime, but ultimately, like so many companies that we'll continue to talk about, they were overcome and drowned by market forces. Mm -hmm. And that is the end. Uh, Well, Matt, do you have anything else you wanted to say?
1: No, I just think that this has been a fascinating journey because I did not know really much about Pan Am at all. I think I was aware of some of the accidents that had taken place, um, but other than that, had very little prior knowledge of Pan Am coming into this. So this has been fun going along this journey with you.
0: Uh, likewise, and I look forward to having the roles reversed and listening about Ames Retail yes. Stores.
1: Yes, so next time, uh, yeah, as Joel said, I'm, we're going to switch. I will be narrating, and Joel will be being brought along for the ride. As I describe the rise and fall of Ames uh, retail or Ames department stores, which uh, collapsed when I was a little kid. I remember seeing a lot of the abandoned buildings around, um, one of which I didn't even know was abandoned until uh, I don't know, I was much older and realized, like, oh, that store's been closed since 2001. Um, so it, it'll be interesting. Um, a lot of acquisitions, things like that. I won't give too much away, but it's, it's a very interesting uh, arc for Ames.
0: I look forward to hearing it. Thank you so much for listening. This is the end of our first season of Pan Am. And we look forward to seeing you guys for the next season and learn all about Ames retail stores. Till then Cool. Thanks for sticking with us.